If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. When I was in school, I had a bully. This is where you go, all oh, feel bad for me. I had a bully in school that so intimidated me. This bully was one of the main reasons that I ended up in LD classes. For those of you who don't know, that stands for learning disability classes. This bully was so impactful in my life that he was one of the reasons I switched from private school to public school and got to do the fifth grade a second time. I thought that I had fled from this bully when I finished elementary school, but he followed me to middle school, on to high school. And then, when I thought for sure I was done with this bully by the time I got to college, I realized that the bully had a big brother. And he was called New Testament Greek. The bully was English. And while English was supposedly my heart language, there was no room in my heart for English. In God's providence, I went from wrestling through New Testament Greek and thinking, for sure now I'm done with language. Yeah. Then I found myself in France trying to learn masculine and feminine and all of these other intricacies of grammar in the French language only to show up in Senegal and be greeted by Wolof. Language is an incredibly powerful thing and by God's grace as he's forced me to language so many times uh, my, my attitude has shifted from language being the bully of my life to beginning to see some of the beauty of it. Right as we begin scripture back in Genesis, we see that God chooses to use language to create. He speaks and it is. We also see, however, the power of language as Satan comes in and uses language to seek to deceive and to destroy. Language is a wonderful gift from God. And while we don't have the power in our language that God has, I mean, when God says something, it shows up. God says tree, and a tree appears. We don't have that power, but we do have the ability with language to take thoughts and ideas that only live in our heads. Some of them should probably stay there. But they live in our heads, and we clothe them with words through language, and then they take on a life of their own out from us. That's incredible. The true power of language shows up in community, right? The true power of language shows up in community when I have an idea in my head and I'm able to put it into words and you listen and then that idea goes from only living in my head to now taking life in your mind. Now what's interesting, of course, is we live in a day and time when we're supposedly more connected than ever before, right? We've got cell phones, and we've got social media, and we've got email, and yet study after study says we are more lonely than ever before. Because the true power of language comes in community when we're sitting in the presence of other people and ideas are being expressed and understood and exchanged. 
Well, like everything that God created, there is always a choice of what we will do with the power that we have been given. And so this morning, as we continue our series on cultivating community, I want to talk to us about the labor of the lips in killing or cultivating community. The labor of the lips in killing or cultivating community. There are few things as dignifying, as value-giving, as, as image-reflecting, meaning reflecting God's image is when we come together and we communicate with one another face-to-face. The question is, though, what do we do when we're communicating? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, we have one of the the major chapters on unity in the body of Christ. We, we have this chapter that starts out and, and, and is talking about the unity that we have because of what Christ has done. Verse 4 is one that we know well. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the context of Ephesians chapter 4 is the context of community. It's the context of the the body of Christ and of preserving unity. And while Paul is talking about the body of Christ and preserving unity and what we have is a local body of believers, something keeps coming up. The first time it comes up in this chapter is in verse 15, where Paul says this, Ephesians 4 verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Then it pops up again in verse 25, therefore having Put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And then the verse that we'll be spending our time on this morning, verse 29, Now let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear three times in a, in, a, in a chapter that's focused in on community living, the issue of our talk comes out. And so we're going to spend time this morning, as I said, focusing in on the labor of our lips and either killing or cultivating community. We're going to start where Paul starts in verse 29, which is with the negative, And he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Now the image there has been cleaned up a little bit for you in our English translation because the word actually means rotten, decaying. That's lovely, isn't it? The idea is that there is there is speech that is rotten, there is speech that decays. It connects with that imagery of a, a body and a body that's undergoing decay. Now, Part of this, I'm sure, in Paul's mind, there, there are certain speech that we think of as filthy speech, right? And maybe in your home you have a list of dirty words that you don't use, and, and those are off-limit words, and there are words that we've kind of identified as a society that continues somehow to shrink. But we've identified that when somebody says those words, we bleep those words and that kind of thing. But I don't think that's really all Paul has in mind here. 
I don't know that Paul's so concerned about a list of words that are deemed curse words or that kind of thing. I think more what Paul has in mind is both the intention and the effect of those words within community life. So it would include things like he's already addressed, for instance, in verse 15 and in verse 25, lying. It would be things like gossip and slander. Because see, the things about this type of speech is it can be incredibly destructive, and yet I don't have to use one, shall we call them potty words? I don't have to use one bad word to do any of those things. I could be talking on live television and no one would need to bleep out anything as I lie, gossip, and slander. In fact, a lot of what comes on our televisions is lying, gossip, and slander. But as I look through the, the, the New Testament and as I thought, you know what, I can't cover every single aspect of corrupting rotten speech there was one thing in the context of community that kept coming up to my own horror and it was this the putrid power of complaint the putrid power of complaint There are three passages in particular where this comes out in the context of community. The first is Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14. It's probably one of the passages that first comes to mind when we think about complaint in the New Testament. And it says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now we need to remember Philippians chapter 2, the context of Philippians chapter 2 is community life. Paul begins the chapter by urging us to look out for one another's interests. He encourages us to think about others and then sets the example of Christ before us and says, here's how Christ did it, have this mind in you which was in Christ. And then he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and out of the outflow of that call to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, this is what Paul directly flows into. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And just in case it wasn't clear that this is talking about community life, he adds with grumbling, disputing. Now, I know some of us feel like the most powerful form of language is when we talk to ourselves. I'm in that company of those who talks to himself. And maybe you at times debate with yourself, but that's not what Paul's talking about right here. He's not talking about the arguments that you have with yourself. He's talking about debating in community. And notice what he goes on to say, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I find that very interesting because if you were to ask me before spending time studying this week, what is it that the body of Christ needs to make sure it's on guard over if it wants to be a shining light in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? The first thing that would not have come to my mind was grumbling, complaining. But that's what Paul says. Same Greek word is used in 1 Peter chapter 4. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 9, Peter does something here I really don't appreciate. He comes and just sits right on my front doorstep, actually at my kitchen table, basically, because this is right where I live. I've probably read this verse a hundred times, but until I was doing a word study on complaining, I didn't pay it any attention. This is what Peter says, 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm like, Peter, do you have a camera in my house somewhere? Because I'd have to be honest, my wife has invited some of you over. (laughs) And there are occasions when, up to the moment you knock on the door, and the moment I see your car pull out of the driveway, there's a lot of complaining that goes on. Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, just in case the context isn't clearly community. Look at verse 8 where he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Paul's saying, or Peter here is saying, look, you, you can go through and you can do your, your word study on the one anothering passages. And you can go out and you can do all those one anothering actions, but if you accompany all those one anothering actions with complaint before and after, it's like baking a dessert and then putting poison in it. The imagery that Paul gives to us is that it rots away all of the one anothering that you and I might do to help cultivate community if before, after, and sometimes during... Our mouths are full of complaint. Now I want us to look at one other passage in the New Testament, and that's James chapter 5. There's a slightly different, there's a different Greek word here, but we find the same idea. James chapter 5 and verse 9, here's a clear one another. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. So that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now the context of this passage is is patience as a community bears up under suffering. Now again, this is not really kind of James to do this to us. Because I can kind of be okay without grumbling and complaining so long as things are going well. Right? If I'm having a good day, you're having a good day. I'm okay with you, you're okay with me. But let suffering and trials begin to come in. Let pressure be put on. What happens at your house? What happens at my house? What happens at your business? What happens on a sports team when things start going south? What happens as pressure and suffering, things outside of your control begin to crash in on you? One of our immediate responses is to begin to complain. Now this is interesting again because even here in the New Testament, such weight is put on grumbling and complaining. The word here actually means to groan or to sigh, but notice what James says. He doesn't say don't grumble and complain because it's, it's not really polite. He says, he says don't do it so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. 
Now that's pretty intense. I mean, we have our list of really bad sins and the really no-no sins, and complaining is not one of them. It's not one where we would say, watch out, if you're a complainer, you will be judged, and the judge is standing at the door. What is, what is James getting this from? I'll tell you what he's getting it from. He's getting it from the Old Testament. You cannot be a student of the Old Testament and think that God is indifferent towards complaint. Let's look at one of those examples. Flip all the way back to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Complaint, unfortunately, was a characteristic of the community of Israel. And when we get to Numbers 13, we're... We're not seeing the first time that Israel complained. In fact, Israel complained while they were still in Egypt. Israel complained when they left Egypt. Israel complained as they were at Mount Sinai. Israel complained after they left Mount Sinai. And now as Israel stands at the front door of the promised land, they're still complaining. Now, the, the, the context here, God has told um, Moses to have spies sent into the land and so they go into the land, they spy it out and they come back out and we find in verse 27 that they begin to give their report about the land having come back. So Numbers 13 starting in verse 27, this is what it says, it says, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us, it flows with milk and honey. Does anybody ever think that's weird? I don't know, in my mind... From the time I was a kid, I just had these pictures of milk and honey flowing around and thinking that's really sticky and anyway. And and this is the fruit. Remember, they had brought fruit back from the land. So what's important to see here, the complaint is not about the land. The land is as advertised. This is not a fast food commercial where they show you things that when you show up there, you cannot find anywhere. Right? That's not what God did. He said that you're going to go into a land flowing with milk and honey. They go and spy it out and they say it flows with milk and honey. No problem there. What's the problem? Verse 28. However, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And they go on to explain how jam-packed this land is. It's got Amalekites and Hittites and Jebusites and Amorites and Canaanites and all kinds of ites in this land, packing it full. Now Caleb tries to interject, but in verse 31 we find the conclusion of these spies who went into the land. Verse 31 The second part, they say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. And as a result of that report, we find the response of the community of Israel in chapter 14, verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night and all of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They complained. What were they complaining about? Well, we know they weren't complaining about the land. The land was as advertised. They were complaining about the obstacles that were in the land. They wanted a land flowing with milk and honey, with weak people that had tiny walls and small armies. 
You see, what's interesting about the Greek word that we find used in Philippians 2 and 1 Peter 4, there's this idea with that word, it it is a supposed legitimate claim that's not met. You and I complain because we think we deserve better or we know better. That is at the heart of all of our complaining. I think that I deserve better or I think that I know better. Now, if you want to try and dig deeper than that and you want to argue, well, that's, the, that's, that's because of pride or that's because of unbelief, you can. But the truth of the matter is, all of our complaining is ultimately because we think that we deserve better or we know better. And many times, as Paul Tripp mentions, our know better is easier. That's ultimately what it comes down to. That's what it was here for Israel. It wasn't the land that was a problem. It was all the obstacles. And this is not what they had in mind. God, it should be easier than this. And so they complained. And and I love the the way they put this because this is exactly how we do it. Verse 2 of chapter 14 says they complained against who? Moses and Aaron. Is that really who they complained against? No. No. They began to complain, and as they complained, we notice as they carry on, verse 2, the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. You fools, you were dying in the land of Egypt. Your infant sons were being slaughtered as they were born in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. You did die in the wilderness. God consumed the outskirts of the camp because you complained. Now, here's when it really comes to it, verse 3. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Israel's complaint as a community was not ultimately against Moses or against Aaron. It was ultimately against God. And the truth of the matter is, as difficult as it is to hear, and as much as I don't like to hear it, every complaint that comes out of my mouth is ultimately against God. When I complain, I am saying, God, I could do a better job. Not only that, but as I complain, I ascend to the throne room of God, I take His throne, and then I put Him on trial. God, my life should be easier than this. God, my circumstances should be different than this. God, I understand you want to make community, but not this community. God, you saved that person, and I don't like them. You shouldn't have saved them. Or you should have sent them to a different church. You see, sinful complaint pulls us away from God. It is, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 9, verse 20, where man turns and answers back to God. And that should never be. Ultimately, Israel stops trusting the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, when, when Moses recounts this, this situation, he, he tells us, he gives us light to the fact that he tried to, to interject here. As they began complaining, he, he tried to voice something. In Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 29, it says this, Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. 
The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Now we read verse 31, or excuse, yeah, verse 31 of Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we get this cute, cuddly little image in our mind. God carried them like a father carries his son. Isn't that cute? Carried. Think of a mom and her baby. That's cute. When's the last time somebody carried you? When's the last time somebody snatched you up and carried you? See, here's the thing about being carried. Is when you are being carried, your feet are not touching the ground. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you are being carried, you are not in control. We've got our nice little poem called Footprints, right? Look back and it's only one set of footprints and I realize, oh, God's carrying me. Most of the time, that's exactly what I'm complaining about. When I am being carried, when you are being carried, you are not in control. You go where the person carrying you wants you to go at the pace they want you to go and you arrive when they want you to get there. Israel didn't want that. You see, negative sinful complaint is that which causes us to, to, to call and to question the goodness of God. It takes us away from trusting Him. There is a biblical complaint. We see it in the Psalms. And biblical complaint always leads to trusting God. It always leads to ultimately laying things down at his feet and saying, God, whatever, this is all happening to me, but I trust you and I put it back down at your feet. But sinful complaint erodes at the trust of God. Now it's easy for us to look at this and go, you know what, Israel, they were a bunch of screw-ups, right? I mean, come on, they're right there. God's promised He'd give them this land and they're not going in and they're complaining about it. What wusses are they? Jesus Christ looked at his disciples and he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He said after he had raised from the dead to demonstrate his power and his completed work, he stood there and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I'm commanding you, go and make disciples. And then I say, well, you know, sounds great when I read it, but God, you know, these people that you're telling me to do this church thing with, eh, have you met them? I went out there to make a disciple, and it was hard. They were scary, and they didn't like me. You know, I'll go out when it's easy in fact, what's easier to do is if I just huddle together in my church building and complain about the people out there. 
sinful complaint is destructive. It breaks down community. It destroys because as we complain, we call into question the God who has united us. We just said that with this table. We are united because we've put our trust in Jesus Christ. We are united because of what He has done for us. As we complain, we go the exact opposite direction and we call into question this God who has united us through trusting in His Son. Now, here's the thing that I have to confess. As I thought about this and, and as this began to rise to the surface, this issue of complaint, I didn't like it because to be honest, For one, as I began studying it, I found that complaint was so often on my own lips. You see, I think, and this might be arrogant on my part, but I think, and I kind of hope, that I go days without consciously lying. I mean, are you with me in that? I mean, I just think about it for a moment. Okay, let's just... Just think about it. Can you go days without lying? Or, or, or every day are you consciously lying? If you are, then let's talk. But if you, hopefully that's there. Hopefully there are days when you're thinking, you know what, today I didn't gossip. I don't know that I really slandered someone today. Do you know what I found as I thought about it? I thought, does a day go by where I don't complain? Can, can I just, can I challenge you to that? Can with a really practical application, can I just challenge you to that simple fact? I want you this week, starting today, to say, God, I want to endeavor by the power of the Spirit to go a day without complaining. Because God does not take complaint lightly. Because Israel chose to complain, their complaining led to a distrust of God. Their distrust of God led them to appoint another leader to return to Egypt. And so for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. Because as James says, God will judge and the judge is at the door. He does not take complaining lightly. And oh, by the way, there are no free words. There are no free zones. Social media is not a complain free zone, consequence free. I don't get to post what I like about who I don't like, say it however I like, and think that somehow God doesn't have an Instagram account. He doesn't have a Facebook account. He's not on Snapchat. He knows. Remember what Paul said, this should mark us as lights in the world that we are a people who come together and complaint is not on our lips. We're not grumbling against one another and we don't unite as we grumble against the world out there. Okay, so Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But, the contrast to that, Paul does that throughout this passage in Ephesians, the second half of this chapter 4, he contrasts the negative with the positive. This is what the the old self, sinful self looks like. This is what it looks like now that we are in Christ. And so he says this, but 
only such as is good for building up. Now that little word building up there at its root just basically means a house or a dwelling. Paul takes this word as Paul likes to do and he uses it to kind of create this phrase of building up. Now, all of us have probably built something in our lives. Some, I'm looking at some faces out here that helped build this building that we're sitting in right now. If I had had part in that, we should all be very afraid. Maybe you didn't build a building in your life, but you've built something, right? From the time that you're little, you begin stacking blocks together, and then there comes that moment when you realize destroying things is way better than building them. And like dad builds, you wham, ah, that's great. And that's what you do for a while. But we understand this mindset of building up. And we understand as we, we come, we move along in that, we realize as I'm seeking to build up, there are some things that are helpful and there are some things that aren't. Right? There are things that fit what I'm trying to build and there are things that detract from what I'm trying to build. Paul here saw his ministry, for instance, as an apostle, as one in which God had called him not to tear down, but to build up. It also fits with this analogy that Paul uses. And in fact, in this one verse, we have two analogies that Paul loves. The body of Christ that he's just used in talking about rottenness. And now he switches to another analogy that he loves, that we are all being fit together as a building. And so he uses this imagery of being built up. He's used it... Several times already in this chapter, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He uses it again in verse 16, where he says, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it, is built, it builds itself up in love. So the question becomes, what are, what are building up words? What, what, what words are the opposite of these rotten words? What words could build us up? Again, we could take this in so many different directions. And I do not want to try to communicate to you that there is only one thing that Paul has in mind here. But as I thought about this, and as I thought about what's the opposite of complaint... And as I also thought, what is a way in which all of us can be a part of building up? One thing came to mind. One of the lessons I listened to this week on complaint, the lady made the point that the opposite of whining is worship. And then I began to think about worship and I thought, you know what? Uh, not all of us are going to worship in song, like get up here on stage and play and sing into a microphone. A lot of us are glad for that. And we're not going to do that. Paul saw his ministry as building up as he, as he preached and taught the word of God. And truth of the matter is, not every single one of us is ever going to teach or preach in a formal setting like this. But there is one thing that every single one of us has that has a credible power to build up the body of Christ. And that is a testimony. A testimony. 
every single one of us that is part of this building that Paul is referencing, that is a part of this body of Christ, he has already made the point that we are part of the body if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, which means every single one of us has a testimony. Now, years ago, I went to a Together for the Gospel conference, the second one I had been to, and there were thousands of people there. All right, thousands of people and a whole list of celebrity pastors. And I don't say that to knock on them, but that's our culture. And the thousands of people were there, partly because the celebrity pastors were there. And they preached, and as best I remember, their messages were good. And I took notes on them. I have no clue where those notes are, but I have them somewhere. And I'm sure they said a lot of good stuff. And there was singing, and it was really good singing. And there was other stuff. We got a lot of books. I probably still haven't read all those books. But when we got in the car and we were headed back, in the car that I was in, to the best of my knowledge, when we asked this simple question, what was was one of the most impactful things to you? Do you know what, as far as I can remember, every single person in that car said? The testimonies. You see, in between the preaching and the singing, they called mostly people up there that we had never met before, no-name people who didn't write books, who didn't preach to megachurches, up onto the stage, they gave them a microphone, and they simply shared how God invaded their lives and saved them, and how ever since then He's been sanctifying them. And that blessed me. I had never heard of most of those people that got on stage before. Until they introduced themselves, I didn't even know their name. But as they testified to the work of God in their lives, something began to burn inside of me. And I said, that is my brother. That's my sister. They testified to things I had never walked through. I mean, some of them had really rough testimonies. I didn't walk through that. I mean, I wasn't dealing drugs and smoking pot and had divorced my wife at the age of two. I grew up a pastor's kid. I didn't experience any of that stuff. But as they shared how the grace of God invaded their lives in my spirit, I just over, me too, me too, me too. Yes, yes. That happened to me too. built me up. It encouraged me. We've had great examples of this in this local community right here. I've I've never had cancer before. I know some of you can say the opposite. I don't ever want to have cancer. But you know what? I know that God's promises are good and true through the battle with cancer because of our dear brother Dave Huther. I've never walked in his shoes. I didn't experience the things that he's experienced. But because he faithfully testified to the goodness of God in the midst of that, I have confidence in him built up in the truths of God's word. I'm up here. This is the second week now. I'm up here and I'm pacing around and I'm screaming and flailing my arms. You know what? I'm petrified of the day. I can't do that anymore. If the Lord tarries and I get old and I can't pace around, Howard tells me, try and stand still some. He does. For y'all's sake. 
tries to tell me that. As I pace around up here and I, and I think, God, my body is going to get old and it's going to stop working the way that it used to. And if my voice gives out and I can't preach like I want to preach and, and I can't raise my voice and shout and do all these, what, what will I be able to contribute to the body of Christ? What will I be able to do? And you know what I picture in my mind? I picture sitting right here a box of flashcards. Right here, a box of flashcards at Miss Ziegler's home going. Because she couldn't pace back and forth. It took her like 10 minutes to shuffle down the aisle and get to that chair. And she'd sit there, but she contributed in faithful prayer. Just give me a list of things I can pray for. One for each day. And I say, God, I've never been there. I've not walked down that road yet, but I know that you're faithful and good. And I can count on you. That's what a testimony does. This evening, Pastor Dial is going to unpack in the small group that meets here, Psalm 145. You turn there just for a minute. I'm not going to try and unpack it. But in that psalm, this is what... We're told, Psalm 145, verse 4, David says this in the midst of praise, One generation shall commend your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts on the, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of your might and your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud your righteousness. One generation declaring to the next. The community declaring together the faithful acts of God. That builds people up. That encourages people. I want, you to, I want you to understand this. We're not saying that, that we change the truth of God's Word. No, I, I want you to picture it this way. Like, like the truth of God's Word is a painting that hangs on a wall. The painting doesn't change, but instead the, 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 the color of the wall behind it is painted different colors. And as those colors change, what happens? Different aspects of that painting begin to pop out at you. They show up and you go, well, I never saw that before. I never saw that that way before. The painting's not changing. But the beauty is being exposed as it's put on the backdrop of different colors. And so it is as the truth of God's Word is placed on the backdrop of our lives. That same grace, those same promises, that same faithfulness shows up. And I go, Never saw that before. I never saw it like that before. Now this is important. A real testimony leaves people thinking about God. Praising God. Not praising you. Certainly not admiring your previous sinfulness. It doesn't leave you thinking about a different place in time. Like the good old days. Oh those glory days. If we could only go back to those, we'd be all good. No, that's not a testimony. It doesn't leave one thinking that they need something, some book, some thing, so that they can be complete. A true testimony, as David lays out for us in Psalm 145, leaves us 
admiring and contemplating and thinking upon the goodness of God. It is rare that a good testimony does not fit. That's what Paul says here, that the words that we give that build up, they need to, they need to fit the moment. You know what's great about a testimony is it doesn't mean that I have to act like I understand everything you're going through. Can I be honest with you guys? There are moments that I try not to tell people that I lived in Africa. Do you know why? Because almost without fail, when I say I lived in Africa, somebody wants to tell me about a short-term mission trip they took somewhere. And how difficult it was for them to transition back. And I'm going, yeah, no. We have this feeling like, oh, I want to say something encouraging. So, I, so what I say is, I understand. You don't understand. You don't have to understand. It is not our ability to understand every circumstance that every single person in this room has walked through that binds us together. It's Jesus Christ that binds us together. And I don't know what you've walked through. I've never walked in your shoes. I've never lived in your home. And you should say amen to that. I've never lived in your home. I don't know the things you've gone through, but I know that my God is good. And in every circumstance, I know that if I can point you somehow lovingly to Him, it will build you up. Because I know the worst thing I could do is enter into complaint with you. Or to, or to even entice you to that and thus cause you to distrust the only one who knows exactly what it's like to be you. So here's the question then. Can we just look around a little bit? This room right here. Some of us come here every Sunday for this time of gathering. You look around this room, do you know the testimonies of the people in this room? Do you know? Do you know how the people that you see each and every Sunday came to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know? Do you know what God has been teaching them over the past year? I, 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 would, I, would, I, would I tell you this. I, I believe, as I've studied this this week, that if we would take seriously battling against complaint, we would see an immediate impact in cultivating community right here, right now. We would see it. If we stop complaining to one another and complaining about others that aren't a part of this community, we would see an immediate impact. And I would submit to you that if we took time and invested in knowing the testimonies of the people that we gather with each week to worship God with, we would see immediate impact in cultivating community. Each seed starting up. Here's my challenge. You and one of those groups, make it a point as you sit around the table to ask one another, how did you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? And once that story has been told, say, how has the Lord been growing you since then? What paths has He walked you down? And just listen and stand in awe of a tangible manifestation of the grace of God. That right there will bless somebody. Not only will that cultivate community, but you know what it also does? 
It reminds me that God is still in the saving business. It reminds me that there are difficult people and there are hard hearts, but none of them are too hard for Him. It reminds me that the task of disciple making and the building up of His church is something that the Savior is faithfully doing and He has empowered us to take part in that. How does that happen? Because as I hear you testify to how God has worked in your life, I see His faithfulness and grace in ways I've never seen it before and it builds me up. Language is powerful. It's incredibly powerful. The question is whether we will use our language to kill community or to build community up. Would you commit with me to do these things? Simple, tangible things. Will you battle complaint this week? Will you commit to battling complaint and knowing it will have an incredible impact here? And would you do this? Would you make it your job to find out the testimonies of the lives of the people that are right here in this community. Let's pray together. Father, I am thankful for your word. I'm thankful for the way your spirit uses your word and he directs us. You know these were not things that I had in my mind as I prepared. And yet I am very thankful for the rebuking and correcting work you've done in my own life this week through this. I pray that we as a community, a local community of faith, a church, that we would endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to battle viciously with complaint. And that we would also be encouraged in that battle against complaint as our understanding of your greatness and of your faithful work in the lives of people around us is is, is multiplied because we're asking people, we're investigating, we're finding out the testimonies of those who are right around us. Be glorified in that work, Lord, we pray. And now as we turn to sing, Lord, we rejoice in this opportunity to take the power of language and do with it what it was created for. Give you glory and honor. In Christ's name. Amen.